Good morning. My name is Dan Song. I'm one of the pastors here at ResCom, and glad that we can be together. A full and exciting morning of celebrations and remembering that uh, the Lord is the one that we worship together. So whether you're a follower of Jesus or maybe you are other than Christian, I'm glad that you are with us here uh, this early morning. And if you're worshiping with us online as well. Uh, As we go to God's Word this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians, if you don't have a Bible, that's fine. We have it actually projected on the screen for you to follow. But as we go into God's Word word this morning, we've been in this series called Resurrection Church. In other words, what does a church look like in light of the resurrection of Jesus that we celebrated four or five weeks ago on Easter morning? This morning, we're going to be looking at what it looks like to grieve when facing death. In other words, what does it look like to be a grieving community that follows Jesus? And so as we do that, let me read this passage for us, starting in verse 13, and we'll end at verse 18 of chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring him with those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, With the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you this morning and we're thankful that your word is alive and true, that though the grass withers and the flower fades, your word will stand forever. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us by your Spirit's work, so that, Lord, for those who are grieving, for those who are hurting, Lord, fill us with hope and comfort as we delve into your word, not mine, but your words alone. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now imagine there's a book containing all the names of the dead. All the people who have lived. An enormous giant book, the last pages though of which are blank. And every half second that passes, a new name appears in this book. Then another name. And then another name. Actually, imagine the book also had their social security numbers next to their names. Well, because this book does exist. It's not a book. It's actually a computer file. And it began in the 1930s when social securities became a thing in our nation. I was listening to This American Life with Ira Glass. And he interviewed this man named Mike Estrue. And he was the commissioner of the headquarters of the Social Securities Administration, and he was the commissioner for about six years under Obama as well as Bush. And as they started keeping track of these names, 
He shared how there's over a hundred million names in this book. And do you know what this book is called? It's called The Death Master File. It sounds a little like Star Wars to me when I first heard it. The Death Master Files. And as they interviewed Mike Estrue, this commissioner, he shared about this story of how his friend called him up about how his mother was so distraught that his, that his father and her husband was not on this list because it actually became public in the 1980s. And so Mike, being a good friend, worked it out so that this, uh, this wife's husband's name could be in the death master file. And this friend shared with Mike about how it was such an emotional moment for her, his mom to finally see her husband's name in this file. He actually got a very grateful and emotional letter from her thanking him for being able to add her husband on this list. As this interviewer continued to talk to Micah Strew, he shared, he, he reflected on how you were in charge of this file. And I, he couldn't understand how he could actually continue to always live with this idea that death was always on the forefront of his mind. But this is what Micah Strew said. He said, I guess that's right. But I, for whatever reason, I'm sort of immune to that feeling. Immune to the feeling of death. Which, of course, in one respect is ridiculous, but on an, in another respect is actually marvelous. Why? Because we all, in some ways, whether you think about this list or whether you're the boss of this list like Mike, you manage not to think about death much often. I think that's true for a lot of us. This resonates with us that for whatever reason... We're sort of immune to the feeling and thoughts of death until it's not, right? We've been in the midst of a global pandemic where last I checked on Friday, 3.24 million people have died. 579,000 in the U.S. alone. And it's often we're reminded of death when there's a sudden death in a family or in a friend. Or a near-death experience that we go through. Other times it's loved ones who are diagnosed with cancer or illness. And it's in these moments we actually pause and think about death and how short our lives really are. And it makes us actually take stock about our lives. And I know for us this morning, many of us are grieving. Diagnoses of loved ones to seeing parents decline in their health, to loved ones who have passed, and the ache you might experience of, a, of someone's memorial. Even on this Mother's Day, to think about those mothers who have passed or children who have passed. Death reminds us that life is short. And Paul here this morning is addressing this very specific issue in the Thessalonian church. You see, they thought, remember last week, they thought Jesus was going to come back very, very soon. And so as they saw all their loved ones dying, 
They were very concerned that these loved ones would never be with Jesus. Like that the fact that those that were alive when Jesus came back were actually at an advantage versus those who died. And so when their loved ones were dying, they were grieving without any hope. They were absolutely distraught in thinking about what would happen when Jesus comes back. They won't actually get to experience the joy of their Savior coming back to earth. And it wrecked them. And Paul here wants to address this concern. And that's his purpose. Look at verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. And that's just a euphemism for death. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He wants to just encourage them. I know a lot of times people use this passage to argue and speculate about the tribulation and what happens when Jesus returns. Is it post-mill? Is it ah-mill? Is it pre-mill? Is it I-don't-know-mill, right? But people will use this for arguing the rapture or not, and we think about the Left Behind series. But I'm not doing that this morning because Paul's sole purpose in writing this letter and sole purpose for us is to actually find hope and comfort in the midst of death. And that's what we want to do this morning, to be able to experience the hope and encouragement that comes from God's word. And so we're just going to briefly look at three things. Here we're called to grieve, to hope, and lastly, to encourage. So let's first look at this first point, uh, to, to grieve. What's so amazing and so important for me is that Paul gives us permission to grieve here. Do you see that? In verse 13, he says that we are called to grieve. But there's so many different ways in which we can respond to death, right? I grew up in a church where we were supposed to put on a happy face. So at the funeral, you can grieve and lament, but as soon as you left, you were supposed to be happy because they were with Jesus. And so I was supposed to fake it and think that everything was okay. For others of us, we're taught to just ignore death and avoid it at all costs. And we in this culture do that really well at times. We keep ourselves busy. We work 80 to 100 hours. We exercise so that we might not be reminded that we are actually getting older. And then there's others of us who are called or have, have learned this idea that we're supposed to just accept death and come to terms with death. That is like this natural thing and it's a part of life itself. But you, do you know Christianity never teaches that? Christianity never teaches us just to accept death and to come to terms with death. Why? Because it's not natural. It's the enemy. And because it's the enemy, it has to be conquered, not accepted. David Hart one of my favorite authors who writes on theology and politics and baseball, he puts it this way. He says, the horizon of human consciousness is an openness to an indefinite future. We aim naturally into the future. We have projects, plans, expectations, ambitions, ideas, grand desires, imaginations about the future. Therefore, he goes on and he says, Every death is an abrupt conclusion to the story whose potential was not necessarily limited except by accidental physical limitations we find that come up against us. In other words, 
death is the great enemy of all that there is to being human. We were wired to plan, to, to think and dream of the future, and death becomes the enemy to what, how God has created every single human being. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. It is abnormal. Death is horrible, and it's an inevitable sorrow. And we experience it as such in the shock and the raw pain of weeping and the aching that we experience with death. Death was never part of the original design. We were not meant to die. Creation and humanity was actually supposed to continue to grow and flourish and last, not die. So when we see Jesus become flesh, what does he do when he sees death? He grieves. He's angered by death. He cries. He laments. And even in the book of Job, there's a place where all of his children die. He tears his robe. He throws ashes on himself. He shaves his head. He falls to the ground. He cries out. He screams. And in all of these things, it's recorded that he did not sin. We are given permission to grieve death. But Paul goes on to say that though we can't just grieve, we have to grieve with hope. In verses 14 through 17, we're given this idea of why we're called to hope. You see, if we just grieve without any hope, it will lead and cause us to become bitter. It will cause us to become resentful. It causes us to become angry at the world and others. But for followers of Jesus, we can grieve with hope. Why? Look at verse 14. He roots it in the reason we can hope in the midst of our grieving. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Do you see that? This is actually one of the earliest creeds of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's only 30 years after Easter has happened. And here Paul notes to all those in the Greco-Roman world, Jesus died and he rose again. And this belief that Christ died and rose again is the promise that gives us hope. That there will be newness of life because Jesus conquered death. A, magnific a magnificent resurrection that follows death and swallows death entirely. The last enemy, death itself, was defeated through Jesus' costly life, his death and love and resurrection. He never abandoned us, friends. He never abandoned us. Rather, when we were burdened by the weight of grief and bound by the fear of death, what did he do? He took on flesh to save us. He shed his blood so that we could be reconciled. And by doing so, he rescued us from death and by its power. Paul says, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, oh, grave, where is your victory? Jesus has defeated and conquered death, not accepted it. And that is what God is doing now. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, all of life, every atom, every fiber of creation is being renewed, restored, and redeemed. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. But you know what else Paul does? He doesn't just root it in the gospel that Jesus conquered death with his resurrection. He gives us this beautiful picture, this metaphoric language, this beautiful vision of what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. 
Some will take this literally. If I were to show you my cards, I think this is just another metaphor. Because there's all these other metaphors, and we'll look at this next week when Pastor John preaches. But here I think this can be taken as a metaphor as well. Because look at verses 15 through 17. He uses all this imagery. Clouds, trumpets. Well, in the Old Testament, clouds and trumpets symbolize God's presence with his people. And then he goes on in verse 17 talking about the coming of the Lord. And he talks about to meet. These Greek words that Paul was using was actually this very Greco-Roman cultural thing that every single person that read this understood. This is what he was actually alluding to. He was using the language of coming, coming and of meeting of a royal visit with the welcome party. In other words, in the world of Paul and of the Greco-Roman world, what would happen is that if there was a dignitary or a VIP or Caesar himself coming to your city, you wouldn't actually just wait for him to enter. You would actually have a welcome party, a commission or a committee that would go outside, a delegation that would actually leave the city gates and walls and go outside to meet him and throw this huge party and then come back into the city walls to continue to celebrate. And that's exactly what Paul is explaining when he talks about Jesus' return. That those who have died, they will come back with Jesus and their bodies will rise to meet Jesus. And then those who are still alive will come and be united with the king and those who have passed away. And they will be united forever here on earth that will be completely renewed and redeemed. So this is a picture of the royal coming of Jesus Christ. Those who have passed, those who are alive. It's this beautiful picture of hope that says we're all going to be reunited to the king of kings. What a glorious hope. In every moment holy, a book of prayers. I loved what they said about death and Jesus. Yes, hate death. It is an enemy. But an enemy whose end approaches and whose assault can inflict no lasting wound. Yes, weep and grieve. But more than that, believe and hope. The veil is thinner than we know. And death is thinner still. It cannot hold any whose names are dearly known to God. Rejoice in this. Death is near neither a gray void nor a dungeon cell but a door. And when Christ bids us pass through at last, we pass from life to life. See, we can grieve with hope. But lastly, what we see here in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians and to us is that we're called to encourage we're called to encourage. Look at verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The word that Paul uses for encourage is actually more so comfort and to console. So I think what Paul is saying is, how do we encourage them? We encourage them by comforting and consoling those whose loved ones have passed away. And what's amazing is that Paul doesn't root their encourage or the encouragement in his own letters. But he says, you're called to do it. Not me. Not me, the one who planted the church. But you as the family of God. Brothers and sisters, you're responsible to encourage, to comfort, and to console those who are grieving without hope. And I know at times it can be awkward. It's even difficult to know what to say to those who grieve. 
But I think here we're called to do that nonetheless. I had a good friend when I first started ministry at 30 years old. We had a member join our church who, who had terminal cancer. And here was a 30-year-old guy who had no clue of how to care and walk with a brother that was dying. But every single week we met, we actually went to this little diner, a Korean diner, where he would have bibimbap. It's this mixed bowl of vegetables and meat because it was the healthiest thing for him to eat. And every single week we met at that diner and talked. In my feeble attempts and probably my mistakes, I was able to learn slowly but surely of what it meant to walk and encourage someone in their grieving and in their death. I'm not saying we come ready with easy answers and trite responses. But to enter into one's grief, learning how to enter, learning how to better mourn with those who mourn so that at the end of the day, we are able to make their burden more bearable because we have shared in their grief. What does that look like for us? This means we're actually called to be quick to listen, slow to speak. And so that when we do speak any words of comfort, that it would actually come from this costly and sacrificial fellowship with those who are grieving. After all, isn't that what Jesus did for us? He entered the brokenness of this world. And he wept with us. And he continues to, to draw near to those who are brokenhearted. That is God's promise to us. And he calls us to do the same thing, to encourage those who are grieving without hope. As I close, Dr. King gave a eulogy for these young victims of the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing back in September 18th, 1963. And he, as he delivered this eulogy at the funeral service for these three children, I wanted to finish by saying this as an encouragement to us, but also imagine these words being spoken to these families that were grieving. I hope you can find some consolation from Christianity's affirmation that death is not the end. Death is not a period that ends the great sentence of life, but a, a comma that punctuates it to more lofty significance. Death is not a blind alley that leads the human race into a state of nothingness, but an open door which leads man into eternal life. Let this daring faith, this great invincible surmise, be your sustaining power during these trying days. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we're thankful for these words of encouragement, these words that give us Hope in the midst of grief. Hope in the midst of our ache and pain. And so, Father, I pray for those who are experiencing death or have lost loved ones. Lord, I pray that your spirit would lift them up this morning to remember, Lord, that you have conquered death. You have conquered it, and there is no more sting. There is no more victory, but only because of Jesus who rose from the grave. And so, Lord, I pray that we would do that now, even as we come to the table, this beautiful sacrament of communion, that not only do we remember 
but we rehearse, Lord, not only your death, but also your resurrection that reminds us that one day we will be united together with the King of Kings to dine and fellowship at the table. Lord, so do that good work as we come and break bread and drink of the cup. Strengthen us, encourage us, but most importantly, Lord, I pray that you would give us hope because of this great vision that, Lord, you will return and that we will be able to celebrate with no more tears, no more crying, but, Lord, one of joy and victory. Do that good work, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.